0: espionage, suspense, drama, and action. Though it does not mention God one single time, it teaches us volumes about how he works in the world. His fingerprints are all over this story. It's a book filled with so many plot twists and ironies that at times it's difficult to follow. I'm talking about the incredible story of the book of Esther. Before we dive into its first chapter, I want to encourage you, as I have so often, to take advantage of the overview videos included in the one-story reading plan. This video for Esther does a great job helping us understand and make sense of this peculiar account. As always, I'll link the video in the show notes for today's episode. But for now, let's look at verses 10-12 through of Esther chapter 1. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious, and his anger burned within him. Jump down to verse 17. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she didn't come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media will hear about the Queen's Act and will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. The book of Esther is at once beautiful and bizarre. Though the book does not explicitly mention God, the author uses this uncharacteristic absence with great effect because it points us to the point of the whole story. Namely, that God often works in the background while we are utterly oblivious to his movements. Just take, for instance, the first chapter of this book. For context, let's remember where we are in the storyline here. 50,000 Jews have returned with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple after the generous decree of the Persian king Cyrus, but not all of them returned. Many remained there. The response to God's initiative to rebuild the temple should have been overwhelming. God was obviously doing this, and yet many decided to remain in the land of Babylon, even though Isaiah prophesied that all of this would happen. There were many reasons that they would have stayed, and very few of them were good. It was 900 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem, and it took Ezra four months to get there. Some were too weak and too old to make the journey, but the majority would not return not because they couldn't, but because they didn't want to. They were comfortable in their captivity. They had risen to power and enjoyed the prestige of living in the capital of the Persian Empire. They had made a fine living for themselves there in Persia. This rebellion was clearly an act of blatant disobedience. Another possible reason for their resistance was the amount of work that it would take to rebuild the city, the temple, and their lives. The walls were broken down, the city was destroyed, the temple work had started but was eventually derailed because of opposition. The whole endeavor seemed fraught with danger and difficulty, and their life in Persia was a pretty comfortable alternative. It was far easier to live in the lap of luxury than move and try to rebuild a city, and a wall, and a temple that was all torn down. Now this unfortunate response grieved Daniel the prophet. He mourned that more people had not taken the king up on his generous offer to return. This extra time that was given to the people of God was really seen by Daniel as a probationary period of God's grace for his people. God had not poured out the curses of Deuteronomy 28 for 2300 years as Daniel had suspected. These actions were all of God's grace. His ability to go back to the land was an act of God's incredible grace and mercy. And yet the people would not return. This pathetic reaction causes Daniel to mourn and pray in Daniel chapter 10. Remember, Haggai had told the people that God was coming to this temple. See Haggai 2, 7, and 8. Zechariah had warned them to flee pagan Babylon because God was coming in judgment upon them. See Zechariah 2, verse 7. But like before, these stubborn people were deaf to God's pleas and warnings, choosing their comfort instead in a foreign land far from God's promise. Now, all of this context is important to understand how God providentially worked in the background of Esther. In this book, we will see a people persecuted and threatened and then providentially delivered. The story of Esther is in many ways a microcosm of Judah itself. They were ripped from their homes and forced to live in an unfamiliar area only to find themselves graciously promoted by pagan leaders and allowed to defend themselves and rightfully return to their homeland. All of it was God from start to finish working in the shadows of a people who were blind and deaf to the pleadings of their gracious and mighty God. Now the book begins in 438 BC, about 30 years after Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. After Darius the Great dies in battle, King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, becomes king. And in the third year of his reign, the king holds a 180-day fast, toasting his accomplishments and the power of the Persian Empire. He then hosts a seven-day party at the palace. The author details the ornate tapestry, the posh furniture, but most of all, the open bar. The men are completely wasted by the end of the drunken binger. Then they order the queen to come into the king's presence to gawk at her beauty. Now reading between the lines here, you can see why she rejects that invitation. And when she does, in his drunken fury, the king orders the wise man to instruct him on what the king should do about her perceived insolence. She is immediately deposed and a declaration issued with the king's authorization that every man should be, quote, master of his own house. Apparently, these men feared the social implications of a woman resisting the drunken demands of a foolish king. Now, clearly, the wine is talking here. This culture is likely one of complete misogyny, and there is no fear of a feminist revolt against the gender roles of such a society. There was no danger in this man-centric worldview, but it is clearly a testament to the faulty view of male superiority. This asinine ideology demands that women be a doormat for foolish boys who feel the need to exert their dominance in their drunken stupor amid their adolescent companions. We need to understand the gravity of our roles as men and women in the more excellent drama of the gospel. This could not come at a better time given that this week is Valentine's Day. Men do not have the right to lord over their wives. They're not called to treat them as doormats, but instead to love them as Christ loved the church. This calling given to men is an implication of the gospel. God will hold us accountable for this trust. And if we love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, we will serve them on our knees in the dust, washing their feet. We will sacrifice our selfish needs to accommodate theirs. We will honor them as worthy of the voluntary crucifixion of our desires to love and shepherd them with dignity and respect. We should do better. Chivalry is more than opening the door for a woman. It's about honoring God by serving our spouse. This calling is entirely foreign in our world today. The roles of our society are increasingly fluid. Sadly, the thought of women submitting to their husbands' leadership in their lives has been forsaken largely because of the ridiculous demands of drunken pagans like King Ahasuerus. We might be more easily followed if we looked less like pigs and more like the Lamb of God. If we would lead and love as Jesus would, we might be amazed at how willing our spouses were to follow our leadership. But as long as we are drunken couch potatoes, reveling in our own greatness, demanding submission in every situation, there is little to respect in a man who leads in this manner. We can do better, men. Let's live lives of submission to God and then see if they will live in compliance with that leadership as well. We are called to honor, respect, serve, and sacrifice as Christ did, and we should do better in this regard. Our selfishness is the primary impediment to their submission. The astonishing truth here is that over and above this deplorable scene is a God who is working to preserve his people amid their own selfishness. With the entrance of Esther, God will single-handedly deliver his people while they continually rebel against him. And he will use these very incidences in chapter 1 to set up his glorious plans. As wives, take courage in your situations, for over and above the pig-headedness of your man is a God who far exceeds your man's ability to image him. This God is never far away when it seems so in your life, and he can be trusted even if your man cannot. Trust his plans, lean into them, and watch him preserve you in the process. Jesus, help us men do better. Please help us to resemble King Jesus and not King Ahasuerus. Help us serve our wives with dignity and respect, crucifying our desires for the needs of our wives. God, help us all to trust your plans for us, and may we not live in rebellion to your callings in our lives to return home. May we not get comfortable in our captivity, and may we recognize your grace, provision, and deliverance, even though you may feel at times 900 miles away from us. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us today for the Read Your Bible podcast. For show notes to today's episode, please visit readyourbible.info. While you're there, you can listen to past episodes as well as access a host of additional resources designed to help you grow in your faith. It's all there for you at readyourbible.info. That's readyourbible.info. For more information about South Seminole Baptist Church, just go to SouthSeminole.com. Join us again tomorrow as together we help you learn to read your Bible.